All right, we are back. We sometimes do obituaries in our third segment, but not today. We're going to put all those together in probably one whole show as we come to the end of the year. Looking back, we will try and uh, cite some lives that were worthy of notice as they drew to a close in 2014. One thing I think we do have to talk about is Ferguson. I don't want to talk about this at great length today, but I think we do need to say a word or two about it. I've observed that there's a widespread acceptance of the fact that an unarmed teenager was shot down by a cop in Ferguson, and the implication in that narrative is that this was an unjustified murder. And I got to tell you, I'm just not so sure that's what happened. In fact, from what I've read, I don't think that's what happened at all. We would note that even the Wall Street Journal complimented President Obama's uh, Commentary on this, saying that um, the president's admirably balanced speech, encouraging calm, while acknowledging that a legacy of mistrust exists between black communities and the police, will, quote, lead to a dialogue and not destruction, unquote. But I also wonder about the words of Jennifer Rubin, writing in the WashingtonPost.com, who asked, doesn't the evidence matter? Noting that from the beginning, a posse of pundits who view everything through a lens of racial injustice decided that Wilson was a racist cop who killed, quote, a gentle giant, unquote. By creating this false narrative with unreliable evidence from questionable witnesses, the media helped incite the violence in Ferguson. And while it's true, we have more police shooting of citizens than most other countries. The number's in the hundreds here in America, whereas in most European nations, it's in the the tens, sometimes zero. But I don't think I can resist pointing out the fact that in this country, your chances of being murdered as a young black male are astounding. My understanding is that a black male born in the United States has a 4% chance, a 1 in 25 chance of the cause of death being murder, which is just crazy off the charts. Juan Williams, sounding off on this very topic, notes that the number one cause of death for African-American males in the 15 to 34 year age group is murder. Juan Williams asked, who's committing the murders? Not police. It's other black men. Last year, PolitiFact found that 93% of murder victims were killed by someone who shares their race. PolitiFact set out to check this claim that homicide is the number one cause of death for black men aged 15 to 34 and looked at numbers from the CDC. Their conclusion, that's a correct statistic. So the question is, why are so many young black men dying from homicide? There's undoubtedly lots of reasons. Experts agree it has to do with poverty and geography, the difference in social structure, access to jobs, educational opportunities, and many other factors between impoverished black neighborhoods and other neighborhoods is often a matter of life and death. I have to ask, where's the outrage at this culture of violence, no matter what the cause may be? Why are we not crying out for appropriate actions to somehow turn this around? For whatever reason, young black men are involved in violent acts that often result in death. I suspect that that contributed to what happened in Ferguson. And while I don't profess any expertise in what went down that day of the shooting, the officer's descriptions of how it went down seem to match up very well with the physical evidence on the scene and the results of the autopsy. So I'm quite dismayed at this chorus that has arisen pointing a finger and claiming that this is the murder of an unarmed teenager. One might also think of it as the shooting of a very large man who assaulted an officer and tried to wrest his gun away from him. That does seem to be what happens. And if you are 
being assaulted or about to be assaulted and you are in fear of your life, shooting an assailant is not murder. It's justifiable self-defense. And I think at this point, I should close this discussion because, again, I'm not an expert on what went down, but we probably should talk to some people who perhaps are in the future. Let's instead move into an area that I'm a little more comfortable with, that I know a little bit more about, the world of medicine, perhaps the world of medicine and why it's not working so well. I've become very skeptical about all the solutions that are being served up of how we're going to fix healthcare in America. One reason is that the solutions that have been offered so far aren't panning out. One of them was electronic health records. This was supposed to be a silver bullet to fix so much about what was wrong with our healthcare system. Back in 2009, as part of an economic stimulus package, uh, Congress mandated that there would be a mass adoption of electronic health records. It was to become a key concept within the context of health care reform. Its proponents, the salesmen that were going to basically provide this service to everybody, claimed that a transition to electronic record keeping would bring about massive savings in health care costs, up to $80 billion a year, according to an off-sited 2005 study by the Rand Corporation. So lawmakers approved a $30 billion incentive program to push doctors and hospitals into the information age. But it turns out this program is now lurching toward an early death. With billions of dollars spent, about 3% of America's doctors and 16% of its hospitals now have record-keeping systems that can interoperate with one another. Yes, these systems were sold to everybody without standardization. Meaning in some cases, even within the same facility, doctors from one department can't talk to others. They have to fax the paper medical records back and forth. And half of the medical professionals who participated in this incentive program are now expected to drop out. So what's the bottom line? Well, the lawmakers of this country were ridiculously overly optimistic about what electronic records could do, just as some critics had warned. RAND's 2005 study, well, it turns out that was funded by the tech companies. And, and it certainly appears that the financial interest of these companies skewed the results. Is anyone surprised by this? And so now, when the next solution to our medical problems comes along, which is alleged to be using telemedicine, where you can basically interact with patients from afar, well, let's just count me among the skeptics. Personally, I find the idea that a tele Medicine examination of a patient where you're not actually present in the room with them, well, I just don't see how that can possibly be as good as laying on of the hands. And in other complications, the FBI has warned American healthcare providers that their cybersecurity systems were not up to snuff. Electronic versions of sensitive documents like x-rays or doctor's notes must be secure as paper ones by law, but um, that's hard to do when they're flying through the ether. In fact, last August, one of America's biggest hospital groups said Chinese hackers had stolen data on 4.5 million patients. All right, let's close with three quickie items from the world of biology and medicine. First, a European study indicates that internet addiction and drug addiction are not compatible, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Turns out that former opiate addicts don't get addicted to the internet. 
This is an unexpected finding because it's known that drug addicts are predisposed to other addictive behaviors, like pathologic gambling. I'm not sure what this means, by the way, except that uh, the former junkie in your neighborhood probably isn't going to steal your Xbox. But if something truly important comes out of that study, we'll try and figure out what it is and report on it. And our radio colleague, Dr. Dina Dell, may finally have been proven wrong. And I do want to note that I almost never disagreed with Dr. Dean. There was one small area where I did not see eye to eye with him. However, he was quite, uh, quite adamant about the fact that we need to get rid of circumcision. I remember hearing him say in his radio show once, you know, he'd like to have that foreskin back. Well, I, to that I would say, good luck, Dean, you're Jewish. But although it's been claimed that circumcision is a, a useless procedure that doesn't do the patient any good, the evidence now suggests otherwise. It does have value in pre- preventing the transmission of sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV. Now, the CDC has stopped short of telling pa- parents that they should have their newborn sons circumcised. But the CDC's Dr. John Merriman did say the scientific evidence is clear that the benefits outweigh the risks. Of course, like everything else in medicine, the big, uh, the big uh, issue with this is our insurance company is going to pay for the procedure. They're going to claim if it's not necessary, well, we're sure as hell not going to pay for it. We'll continue to follow that. But I do note that the stats uh, from this article show that the ma- a man's risk of getting HIV from an infected female partner drops 50 to 60% if you're circumcised. And Mr. McMillan suggests that you, of course, should be wearing a condom rather than trusting the fact that you are circumcised, and I I would agree. All right, and final item, we've been talking a lot about the revolution that's taking place in the world of microbiology as we understand what type of microorganisms grow in us and on us. There was a recent piece, which I can't can't put my hands on right now, of some recent science showing that we now understand more about how chimps and human beings diverged based on the different flora that are growing in us and on us. Fascinating stuff. But let's just close with a rather bizarro item about something I've always wondered about. How can it be that vultures, those scavenging birds, can eat things that would leave other animals stone dead? Note of the economist, vultures are not exactly picky eaters. The carcasses in which they dine swiftly decompose, broken down by microorganisms that excrete a range of nasty toxins. This makes decaying flesh a perilous source of food for most animals. Vultures, by contrast, either wait until their chosen corpse has decayed enough for them to peck through its often tough skin or find a quicker way in through natural orifices. And in doing this, they expose themselves to just a witch's brew of microbes. To try and figure this out, some scientists have cultured the bacteria found on the skins of vultures. And from this, some answers of how they do it are emerging. It turns out vultures have incredibly acidic stomachs, 10 times more acidic than our stomachs, which means that their gut destroys a large amount of any potentially pathogenic bacteria that are ingested. Still, what gets through is not exactly benign, If you examine a vulture's large intestine, and I I really don't recommend that you do this, you'll find two types of anaerobic fecal bacteria, Clostridia and Fusobacteria, both of which can be deadly to other animals. Some Clostridia species, for example, have been responsible for periodic mass die-offs in birds like geese, ducks, and waders. One curious fact here is that vultures that are in zoos 
which eat very different diets than those in the wild, have similar microbial compositions in their intestines, which suggests that there's a partnership between bird and bacteria, one that's profound and well-established and allows them to eat the terrible diet that they consume. The immune system of these birds also appears to be turbocharged. Anyway, I've often wondered how these birds could possibly live on a diet like that, and we're figuring it out, and what we're learning is going to have some applications in the world of human beings, which is pretty cool. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Our thanks to fellow PA host Conrad Wilton. He's a bright young man and has, I think, a uh, fine future in the world of radio. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. Oh, and thanks to Governor Brown for joining us. (laughs) 